Hustlers, Road Players, Tournament Champions. Hear the stories, get their advice, learn about their lives. Our host, Joey Ryan, brings you an inside look at the professional pool player. You're listening to the Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. Hello, and welcome to the Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. In each show, we'll interview top players so you get to know them a little better, all with the end goal of advancing professional pool in the United States. Today, we have a guest with us, a great player, great person, Mike Davis. He's the two-time Reno Open winner, 2003 and 2008. He's a U.S. Bar Table Nine Ball Champion from 2005, which kind of surprises me a little bit because I didn't think he liked bar tables. <laughs> he's, the, he's the Korean uh, Pro Tour Champion from 2008. He's a runner-up in the 2011 World 14.1 Championship and the winner of over 150 open regional tournaments, which if you've ever played in one of those events, they're tough events. And to win one is saying something. He's won over 150 of those. So without further ado, I just want to welcome Mike Davis to the show. How you doing, Mike? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, wh- why don't we jump right in? Uh, how did you get started in pool? Uh, so I played as young as I can remember. I was 11 months old, apparently, my dad said. He said he had me crawling around in diapers, cut off about the top uh, 18 inches or so of a pool cue. And I didn't know there was a cue ball. I just tried to push the object ball into the pocket with the cue when I was 11, 11 months old. So, 11 months old. See, yeah, I, some, of, some of my earliest memories were playing pool as a little kid. Wow. See, I don't, I, you know, I, I thought I was one of the youngest to start playing pool. I started when I was five and kind of had to do it overhand. Uh, but that's a new one for me, 11 months old. <laughs> that's pretty yeah. impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, probably pretty early. I don't, I don't know how well I was playing, but apparently I was trying. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. So, uh, take me through your years growing up as a pool player, like, you know, obviously you started when you were 11 months old, but you probably weren't competitive until you were a little older. Take me through the time when, you know, you were starting to learn how to play pool. Where were you? You know, what part of the country? And and uh, take me through all that. OK, so uh, I played a lot with my dad as a kid. You know, we did have the table at home, but we traveled. Uh, he was in the army. So I think I played like my first tournament, probably about nine years old with him. And he was teaching me. I could run three or four balls when I was nine. I had, you know, a little bit of an understanding of English, but not really. And I started taking it real serious just for one summer at 15. And I remember I beat a couple of guys on the Army base when I was 15. I thought I was like, you know, something special. My dad <laughs> kept trying to tell me, like, I'm not really playing that good yet just because I beat two or three guys, whatever. So he gives me my allowance and actually played me one-handed eight ball to my two hands and beat me. And took my allowance money back, and he kept it. <laughs> That's wow. the worst part. Like, how do you keep it? <laughs> like, anyway, so I asked him, like, 30 years later, like, you know, 20 years later, whatever, like, why'd you keep it, Dad? And he's like, well... That's why you remember it, because I kept the money. <laughs> yeah. So that was lesson. the first time I ever got hustled. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let me see. After that, like, I really didn't play again until I was about 17. And then I was in this little town, Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, they have five stoplights now, by the way. They're really moving up. Uh, <laughs> they had four. They had four when I went to high school. So, oh, wow. 
you know, there wasn't a whole lot to do in Waynesboro. Nice little town, good people, but there wasn't much to do. So I just started going to the pool hall every day after school and just, you know, never looked back. Like, basically played almost every day since then. Really? Yeah. So, so let me ask you this. When, at what point did it kind of shift for you when you went from being, you know, just a guy who can make shots and run five, six balls to realizing, hey, you know, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I could be one of the better players around in this state or in this region. You know, at what point did that really kick in for you? Okay, so I guess I think I had two, like, kind of breakthrough moments. The first one where I felt like I was a good regional player, 20 years old. I ran four racks in a row in a ring game one time. Then I ran five racks in a row gambling another pretty good player. And so at that moment, I was like, okay, if I can run four or five in a row under pressure, like, you know, I'm, I'm playing pretty well. I'm beating a lot of guys around here now. That was kind of a breakthrough. But then uh, my real breakthrough when I felt like I was actually like arrived to pro level, I was at a big regional in uh, Ohio, November 2002. I remember I beat Keith McCready, Johnny Archer, and Corey Duell all back-to-back matches. So I was wow. like, okay, you know, if I can beat these guys like back to back, that's, you know, I- I'm there. I can play with anybody now. Yeah. So take us through that period of time where you went from running four racks in a ring game to beating the Johnny Archers of the world and, you know, help kind of summarize maybe some advice for those players right now that are out there who are good players uh, strive to be great players can maybe run five, six balls right now. Um, but they're, they're willing to do what you did. They're willing to go to the pool hall every single day and hit balls. What kind of advice can you give them to, to climb the ladder, so to speak? Okay. Well, I got, uh, three things and I think it's real simple. Um, I mean, the biggest one I think is competition. So, and that's, that's the two it's gambling and tournaments and it can be either one and you don't have to bet tons of money or some people, some people really think gambling is bad for the game. If you're one of those guys, maybe just stick to tournaments, but you have to compete as often as possible. You have to be playing under pressure because you can miss a hundred balls practicing, forget all of them. doesn't matter if you miss one or two gambling or in a tournament and they cost you some money, you remember those mistakes that's how you correct your mistakes the ones that hurt the ones that keep you up at night for a few hours you lose some sleep you remember those ones and you tend to make you know corrections the next time uh the other thing and this one came straight from efren efren uh i tried to pick his brain after dinner one time at a pro pro tournament uh a big group of us went out i was happy to sit next to him anyway so he told me the the gambling plan under pressure and then 15 ball rotation if you're gonna practice I almost hate to give people this advice. It's too good. I don't need some of these guys coming up too fast and starting to beat me. But uh, playing nine ball or 10 ball, it just looks like a joke after you play 15 ball for a while. You play 15 ball rotation, you just have to move the cue ball in between all that traffic. Every shot, you know, is really going to get your cue ball dialed in. You know, that's really interesting because I don't really, I've never really heard that advice, you know, to play 15 ball rotation. And in fact, you you know, I travel, you know, all over the country and pop into pool halls here and there. I never see anybody playing 15 ball rotation. You know, it's always 10 ball, nine ball, eight ball, one pocket, sometimes straight pool, although not so much anymore. But uh, yeah, so 15 ball rotation, you really think that'll help uh, folks get better? A hundred percent. And I watch Efren still practices that generally to this day in between rounds at events. And it doesn't matter if he's playing straight pool, nine ball, one pocket, whatever. He's usually playing 15 ball rotation to to practice in between. 
and then he goes to play whatever. And that's why Bustamante and him and some of the some of the older Filipinos, they just see the game different. You know, they move the cue ball a little bit more precise, and and you have to get good at shooting balls off of balls and playing caroms and just all kinds of stuff in that game. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Mike. You mentioned gambling and you mentioned uh, tournaments. And so I know pool has had this negative stigma for years, gambling, you know, uh, alcohol, drugs, you know, smoky pool rooms, you know, um, folks that let's say are, are not the, you know, the nicest people in society sometimes and, you know, hustling, right? Um, but I've noticed something different about you over the years. I've known you now for, I don't know, 15 years maybe. And you have a different philosophy when it comes to gambling than a lot of people, uh, you know, and I, I like to call it more of a customer service philosophy <laughs> because, you know, I lost to you a lot of times. You would give me the, you know, last three or the seven, eight, nine or whatever it was. And I would pay you a hundred dollars, $200. And I was happy to do it, you know, and I'd keep coming back. So you had this like really good way to, uh, you know, make me feel like, Hey, I got to play with a great player. We had a good time, and that was basically my entertain entertainment fee. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Because you know, it's so much different than what I see out there with other players. Yeah, yeah. For one, I, I just really didn't feel right a little bit when I attempted to hustle when I was young. Didn't feel right at all about it. I didn't want to do it. And uh, once I started playing, you know, tournaments again and, and focusing on gambling like that. It's all legit because you knew who I was. You know, I know you're a good player. You knew I was a little bit better. We matched up. And uh, Danny Basovich called it courtesy action. Guys want to play good players. And if you're going to play them reasonably cheap, it's worth it for them, for the for the experience, for the lesson, just to have a good time, entertainment, whatever. And so, yeah, I just try to treat people well. You know, I, I don't talk a bunch of shit to them when I'm playing. Sorry, talk a bunch of smack. Uh, okay. Anyway, uh yeah, you know, just try to be polite. I call fouls on myself. I mean, I'm not trying to cheat them with the rack. I just, you know, just try to play pool. And I love competing hard anyway. So I like to give up pretty tough spots and, and play legitimate games like that against people. And it, it does tend to keep people like yourself coming back, you know, rather than if you antagonize somebody into playing. Yeah, they might go off one time playing you and then they're pissed off at themselves and they hate you and, you know, they don't ever play again. But if you treat somebody well, I've got a ton of guys who've been playing me, you know, for years and years, and, and they'll probably keep playing forever until if I move away or something. But, uh, you know, some of the guys just love it and they, they think it's good practice and, you know, it works out well for everybody. Yeah. And we ended up having to reschedule this uh this interview and uh, just we were supposed to meet yesterday. And the message that you sent me when you had to reschedule for me was like, this is why one of the reasons I'm doing this, I want people to understand just how unique pool is, right? Pool is not like any other game out there. And there's these, these, you know, really interesting people and really interesting stories. So tell me, how come you didn't do this interview last night? <laughs> okay, so a local player who tends to gamble quite a bit, he had just made a big score. He had won 6,000 the other day. And I just know you got to get him while it's hot. You know what I mean? You got to take advantage of the situation. If I wait, he might put that money in a poker machine. He might lose it to somebody else. Who knows? But if I'm the first one to get to him after he just made a big score, 
I've got a chance to win some significant amount of money that day. So, so I wanted to reschedule and I appreciate you allowing me to reschedule because I made a few bucks yesterday. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> the whole six grand. <laughs> no, I wish no. I did. Yeah. But I, I made yeah. a little something, but certainly not that much. So Mike, you know, you've made your living really um, grinding out pool up and down, mainly the East Coast of the United States, although you have been to Asia, you've played out in Vegas and Reno and places like that and, you know, all over the country. Um, but take us through what life was like uh, back when you were really at the top of your game and you were traveling every single weekend. You were playing most nights of the week in local tournaments. Give us an understanding of like what your week looked like and really financially what that looked like all right well the uh the hardest part about the the pool player routine is waking up at noon or two in the afternoon or wait maybe that's the best part i don't know (laughs) (laughs) uh i really like that uh i get to kind of wake up whenever and get to work basically about seven or eight o'clock in the evening monday through friday because that's when the tournaments start and generally the action starts around the same if you're going to gamble because most of the time guys are at work throughout the day whatever so yeah, I'd play pool from uh, seven or eight o'clock at night till midnight, two in the morning, and then go home and eat dinner at three or four in the morning and get to sleep after that. And I actually loved that schedule. Now, that was the Monday through Friday type. And uh, weekends, man, I did a lot of traveling. That part about pool, you know, it's it's boring driving around by yourself. Sometimes guys find a good road partner, but sometimes it's difficult to do because you don't you don't necessarily mesh with a, a certain other person or some pool players, unfortunately, aren't very trustworthy. You might not want to ride around with just anybody. So, uh, I mean, I drove one time like from Tampa to New York City and all the way back to Florida the following weekend and then all the way back to New York again the next weekend because that's how the tournament schedule was. I mean, that was a lot of driving around, but I won like two out of those four tournaments or something, made money in one of the other ones. So. Yeah, that was my life. I was all up and down the East Coast driving. If there was a big tournament out west, I'd fly out, but forever just driving up and down the East Coast, putting a ton of miles on my car. So let's talk money. You know, when when you were out there at the top of your game and you're winning money in these tournaments, you know, what are you looking at in terms of what you were bringing in a year and then factor in your expenses? Yeah, that part, man, the expenses real eat up a whole bunch of it. If you're traveling like that and you're not playing well, it can get really tough. I mean, the year that I made the Moscone Cup, man, I probably, I think I made like 90 something thousand that year. Like I didn't keep track exactly, but around 95, 97,000 something, but you got to take off about 30 for expenses. And that was a year that I had my, my best really overall record as far as pro tournaments where I cashed and so there was plenty of other years where maybe I only made 50, but then spent, you know, 20, 25, 30 on expenses. So, yeah, it's it's pretty tough sometimes if, you know, only end up twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 ahead at the end of the year. That's not much. But then again, I never had a good job. So if I was going to make that much money, at least I got to do something I enjoyed while I'm not making much. So I want to ask you about the Moscone Cup. But before I do... That what you just answered with reminded me of a time that you and I went on the road together to play in a tournament up in Turning Stone. You remember that time? I do. And, I was afraid you were going to try to bring this up. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, just for the listeners out there, it's it's one of my favorite stories. So I'm going to try to be brief and tell the story and then we'll get Mike's take on it. 
but what happened was we were on our way to Turning Stone and I had a job. I had taken off for the weekend, you know, a long weekend. And uh, Mike picks me up. We start heading to Turning Stone and we get about halfway there. And I said, man, I'm really excited to stay at the hotel. I'll play poker if I lose and, you know, just play, play some blackjack, you know, and have some fun. And Mike's like, we're not staying at the the casino. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he's like, we're staying at the Red Roof Inn in Syracuse. <laughs> and I'm like, no way. This is my vacation. And so we ended up coming to an agreement that uh, we would stop and we would play a set, a race to 11, break from the box, loser rack, same format as the Joss tour that was happening at Turning Stone. And if I won, we would stay at the casino and split the rate 50-50. But if Mike won, which he was the overwhelming favorite, we would stay at the casino, but I would pick up the additional portion of the casino rate where Mike would pay half of the red roof in rate. Right. <laughs> and so we, we walk into a pool hall. And of course, as soon as we walk into pool hall, you know, I, I'm saying to Mike, Hey, if you find action, if we can, you know, get a game, you know, let's forget about this. And of course we walk in and somebody says, Oh, Hey, Mike Davis, I need the seven, <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, happened everywhere we went. It seemed like, uh, but we get in there and we start playing this race to 11, and I've never seen you dog it so bad in your <laughs> life. I mean, you've played it on ESPN. You've played in the Moscone Cup. You've played in Asia. And, man, your arm was just rattling back there. You couldn't do a thing in this set, and I ended up beating you. And you didn't talk to me the rest of that drive all the way to Turnstone, right? Is that how you remember it? It was pretty much like that, yeah. I mean, I want to blame it on you bad racked me or something, but no, it was just too much pressure, man. <laughs> the the thought of spending extra money, because I'm a pool player and I'm trying to keep expenses low so I can end up profiting, the thought of staying in a nice hotel versus the cheap one just had me rattled, man. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. <laughs> oh, that was Way funny. Way pressure. I love that story. And then, you know, we'll sh we'll talk later about the, the return trip home, which is a whole nother story. But I want to ask you about the Moscone Cup. Yeah, we didn't uh, talk on the return trip either. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. No. Uh, which they're going to think we're like not nice guys. We're nice guys here. Anyway, uh, Moscone Cup. So we have an event out here. I, I live in the Phoenix area and we have this East versus West event. They call it the Saguaro Cup. And it's a great event. You know, Mitch Ellerman's played in it, Scott Frost, you know, top players out here. And it's the best, pretty much the best players on one side of town against the best players on the other. And it's Moscone Cup format. You know, you have the scotch doubles, you have the singles. And so the second year I lived here, I was asked to compete on the East Side team. And, you know, I can tell you, I've played in hundreds and hundreds of events, some of them really large events. I've never felt more nervous than I did in this particular format. There were couple hundred fans there. It was being streamed out. Pretty much the whole state cared about it. And I had a bunch of teammates there counting on me. And it was just pressure like I had never felt. And so kind of preparing for this interview, I went back and I found a clip of you against Mika. And I think that might have been the case game. Was that the case game for the whole, the whole shebang out there? No, it was for our match, but there was one match right afterwards. And gotcha. uh yeah, I felt like if I got lucky in one mine, Corey Duell was going to pull off the, the win for us because he was up against the rookie for their team, oh. and uh, Corey did get the win. So we take us, Yeah, take us through what that was like because, 
you know, he misses, he had pretty fairly easy position for like, I think it was an eight and nine ball to get out. Then he tries to bank the nine and he leaves you a tough shot, but a shot you're going to make, you know, 95% of the time. And you missed it by six inches. <laughs> Sorry to bring that up. <laughs> and then, and then he comes back and miss, you know, so it's going back and forth and, and we're like, these are the best players in the world at the time, you know? And so take me through the pressure, take me through that moment from the, the actual Moscone cup. Okay, so in general, I loved it. I mean, it was about the most intense pressure I've ever felt, but that's that's why we play pool, right? That's why, you know, that's why we gamble our play tournaments. We love the adrenaline. We love to compete. And I had a lot of confidence in my game at the time. You know, I was playing really well. So in general, I held up pretty well. I had a 5-3 and three record. But Mika did actually, he completely got out of line, bumped the nine ball, so he kind of dogged it to bump the nine to the rail when he should have, you know, got out easily. He misses the bank, leaves me a really long shot, like you said. I butchered it. I leave him another bank. He missed again, and he left me a long, thin cut. And this time uh, I was looking at like it was so thin, maybe it was close to a scratch shot. Could I even cut it backwards that far? Thinking about banking around table, trying to play safe and just leave him like end to end. Anyway, uh, the shot clock thing buzzes, and there's only five seconds left. So I just had to pull the trigger, and and I cut it in and got, you know, I felt maybe I'm glad the, the buzzer went off because if I had too long to think about it, I probably would have dogged it somehow. I just had to get down <laughs> and fire the shot in, you know? Yeah, you so. cut that ball backwards, too, into the side. That was a great, great match. That What was that, 2005? Uh, 2006. 2006, okay. Yeah. And, and the U.S. won that year. Yeah, so actually we kept the cup because there was a tie. I don't know why they did it, but we're the defending champions and they did an even number of matches. So if in the event of an even number, you know, the tie, whoever had the cup before gets to keep it. So we didn't technically win, but we kind of did. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, I do remember, uh, so me and Earl have not had the uh, the best time. Sometimes we don't get along when we compete. But when I've made that ball, Earl basically realized that I'd probably just won him an additional $5,000 since we were going to get to keep the cup and there was a big prize money difference. He runs out and gives me the biggest hug, practically tackled me when I made that shot. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. So what do you mean you guys haven't always gotten along? Oh, man. So uh, the very first time I met Earl... We had some mutual friends, and he was trying to give me all this advice. He's like little tips about, you know, how I could play better, that sort of thing. And then the very first time we play each other, he bad racks me, and it's awful. And I went down, and I looked, and and I said it as polite as I could. And I'm like, hey, I'm sorry. Like, maybe the ball's rolled off or something. Do you mind re-racking him? And he says, kid, you ain't played long enough to know what a good or bad rack even is. So <laughs> that's how we get started. And, of course, he does this typical, you know, saying whatever throughout the match. And he sharks me pretty bad. He beats me 9-3. to three. And then uh, the next time, I'm a little bit more prepared. But he sharked me, and he beats me 9-6. to six. And then after that, I went on a tear, and I beat the guy eight times in a row. Wow. I beat him 7-1. Uh, to one. It was one of my first, um, one of my only TV matches because, you know, I didn't make it that many times on ESPN. But, yeah. Seven to one on ESPN, and that started a, a, a streak where I ended up beating Earl Strickland eight matches in a row. So, Jeez, yeah, it's pretty crazy because he was always the better player, but because he's a bit of a head case, once he realized he couldn't he couldn't get in my head, he couldn't rattle me anymore. It kind of it 
you know, it had him rattled knowing that he couldn't get to me and that he actually had to play to win. He couldn't just, you know, beat me with the mental games anymore. So, yeah. And, and Earl, isn't Earl from North Carolina where you live now? Like, yeah, actually, uh, the town I'm originally from Fayetteville, North Carolina, my dad was at Fort Bragg army base there. Uh, Earl's from right outside of Fayetteville. So we were born within a few miles of each other. And I used to be super proud of that. And, you know, until I figured out how he acted sometimes during matches. So, <laughs> you know, he's a great player. He's a champion. Everybody's, uh, you know, you got to respect his game and his accomplishments for sure. You can't take anything away from him as a player. I just wish he had a little bit more etiquette at the table from time to time. <laughs> yeah, that has to be frustrating. I, I've never actually played him, but I've played other versions of him who were, you know, similar acting players, but didn't play quite to his level, which is like, you know, really frustrating for me. But um, speaking of characters, uh, who out of all the people, so one of the one of the things that really fascinates me about pool are really the personalities. And one of the things that I've said for years is that pool players, you know, I think they've been done a disservice where everything is about trying to make this the gentleman's game and have them in dress codes and, you know, uh, penny loafers and khakis when really you guys have such colorful personalities, right? And, And why not just let you guys be you and, you know, market that? You know, the same way poker does with Mike Matisau or, or Phil Helmuth. So I guess my question for you would be, you know, out of all the people you've run into out there, you could probably list a hundred people's names, but like who, give me someone who's like just a character, you know, just somebody who you really just enjoyed the fact that they were just such a character. Okay. Uh, first one that comes to mind is Scotty Townsend. Like he's, you know, he's a legend, especially in the South, the Southeast, like, you know, everybody down there has tons of stories about Scotty, like crazy guy. I love him. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately, but yeah, great player. Definitely, uh, definitely a character. So uh, somebody's supposed to write a book about their experiences with him, his old road partner. I certainly hope he does. Cause he's got tons of good stories. So yeah. Um, Keith McCready is another one. Keith McCready was very, very entertaining. Like, uh, you know, like how you said I could win a hundred or two off of you or something occasionally, and, and you thought it was well worth it. Keith might be at a five or ten thousand, and somehow people thought it was just the greatest time they ever had. <laughs> so, <laughs> it know. wasn't a nightmare, was it? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's pretty it's funny. Cool. Yeah, he's definitely a character. I mean, there's a bunch of other ones. Uh, there's a guy in North Carolina named Charlie Brinson. Maybe a ton of people haven't heard of, but. Again, if you're in the Southeast, like most everybody's known stories about Charlie, and he's he's super funny too. So oh, yeah. I like you to maybe you can interview him one of these days. Yeah, he's yeah. got a bunch of stories. So talk to me about the region that you live in now. So you were probably playing your best pool about a decade ago, uh, but you're still out there on the grind all the time. You're still winning tournaments, and you know I'm just curious, like who are the better players right now in North Carolina, South Carolina? you know, Virginia, the, those areas where you frequent most. Okay. Uh, right here in Raleigh, we got a couple of Brad Shear and Corey Sykes, both real good amateurs. They both work and, uh, but they can, they can win matches against just about anybody if they're playing well. Um, overall in North Carolina, I'd say the best now are, uh, Justin Martin and BJ Ussery. Uh, those oh. two are playing really well. You know, BJ quit playing basically, or at least played very rarely for years and years. And then all of a sudden, you know, the last two years, he decided to take it serious again. And I think he's playing as well as he ever has. 
Wow. So yeah, he's he's won quite a few of the tournaments around here. Um, in Virginia, uh, let me see. I mean, Matt Clatterbuck, uh, that um, Eric Moore, still a good player. Chris Futrell was playing really well, but he's he's got you know some kind of career now where he's not playing any pool seriously. Uh, Ray Mark, it, Ray Mark's it's, tough. It's funny how we say that, like kind of in the negative. It's like, yeah, he went out and got a good career, so you know, yeah, I mean, there I'm goes the game. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy for him, but uh, it's disappointing sometimes to see like some of the really talented young guys that you know, unfortunately, there's not enough money to to keep them motivated to play pool because he was a great player, a nice kid too. So I would have liked to seen him continue, but you know, he's he's got a good life. He you know, so I'm happy for him. Yeah, Raymart Lim's a super tough. Uh, he breaks probably better than Shane Van Boning. I don't know if he does it under pressure quite the same, but boy, when he's comfortable. He just hammers the ball playing 10 ball, makes three, four balls just about every time. The cue ball jumps up in the air and just dies right in the middle of the table, like over and over again. It's right. pretty sick. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah, and he's, he's, out of, he's out of like Norfolk, Virginia Beach, somewhere yep, around. Virginia Beach. Yep. And he's, I think he drives a truck and he doesn't play too many big tournaments either. Like, you know, but if something comes to that area, you better bet on him. That kid's playing good. Really? Yeah. So you mentioned uh, when you were talking about Chris Futrell, you mentioned that uh, he's got a job now and it's a shame that there's not that much money in pool to really support that. So let me, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to do is try to figure out a way to bring professional pool back, right? There's still pro pool players here and they still go and play in pool tournaments, but a lot of the professional ones are either a few a year in Las Vegas or, you know, Chesapeake, Virginia or overseas. You know, so, I mean, maybe this is a really hard question, but how do we bring professional pool back to the United States, like a true tour, a circuit, something like that? What Do you have any ideas on that? Uh, I do have an idea. I don't know how easy it is to make happen, um, but people have talked about the idea. Danny Green had it and some others, Corey Duell, but um, they wanted to start a league and basically, you know, how the league dues um, go towards the year-end tournaments in Vegas for the league players. But if they just took just a little portion of the league dues and made that to fund the Pro Tour, I mean, they bring in so much money, APA, BCA, TAP, whichever other. There's, you know, there's just tons and tons of league players playing and paying $7, $10 a week, whatever it is. If you just took 50 cents out of each one of those fees, that could fund a phenomenal Pro Tour. So that's that's like the simplest idea, I think, to make happen. It's either that or somebody's got to land a, a major sponsor out of nowhere. But compared to what they pay in other sports, I mean, somebody could get pool and just completely control pool for like less than they pay one athlete. You know what I mean? Like they give uh, like LeBron James or somebody like a couple hundred million dollars. I mean, they could they could have pool do well for the next 20 years for what they do for one athlete. Yeah, it's a good. I never really thought about it that way. You know, that's that's a good uh, good point. Let me, let me ask you this: kind of changing gears a little bit. Um, what are some tangible things in terms of your preparation? Let's say, like next week, there's a big tournament in Atlanta, and you decide, hey, I'm going to go to this, and you have a week to prepare. What types of things are you doing to get yourself ready for this tournament uh, so that you can perform your best? Oh, man. Well, there's there's so many different things. I mean, uh, one of the biggest things I try to find out the conditions we're going to be playing on. So if I can find out what kind of table, what kind of cue ball we're going to be using, that sort of thing. 
And I want to put some time in on that because if you're switching from a measle cue ball to a red circle to whatever else, like it's a pretty big adjustment and going obviously from a diamond table to a Brunswick table, that sort of thing is a major adjustment. So I want to practice on that exact equipment if I can practice on some tougher stuff sometimes too, of course, and, you know, just stay in action, but uh, definitely get a little bit of table time in with whatever balls and whatever table you're going to be using. So do you call ahead or, or phone a friend to yeah. find out, hey, they use, you know, a uh, yeah. measle ball or, okay. If I don't yeah. already know, because I've played in so many tournaments, a lot of times I've been to the venue before, I have a good idea. If not, then yeah, I'll, I'll call a tournament director, I'll call the pool hall, I'll try to find out, yeah. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I think that's great advice because, you know, I, I look around Arizona, we have this amazing amateur pool scene here. I mean, it's great. There's, you know, a couple thousand people in a Facebook group, and it seems like all of them play pool and love pool, right? Mm -hmm. And there's events all the time at all these different places, and I don't know how many people actually consider the conditions they're going to be playing under prior to the tournament, right? I think maybe they just say, hey, if I'm going to hit some balls today – you know, I'll be more prepared for that tournament. And meanwhile, they're using a red circle and, you know, they're, they're playing with the Cyclops when they get to the, the venue. So I really like that. I think that's, that's good advice. L let me ask you this. Um, you know, we mentioned before, you know, your little rivalry with Earl Strickland. I, is he who you would consider your arch rival? You know, like your arch nemesis, you know, I, I kind of <laughs> think about that. I had a few people in my career where, you know, and I, obviously I didn't have a professional pool career, but, you know, just people who I would play over and over again. And it just seemed like I pressed really hard to beat them. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't work. You know, Ryan McCreesh sticks out to me. We had, you know, I'm sure I wasn't his rival because he was a better player than me. But there were so many times where, you know, we were deep in a match and it's six to six and he'd shoot a ball in the corner and it'd go two rails and fly in another hole and we're playing nine ball and you didn't have to call it, you know, or I would scratch on the break hill hill and he'd run out and he was a fabulous player, but it just seemed like I could never get there against him. And it was just always, uh, I was always trying to ramp myself up to play him. Is anybody like that kind of stick out to you? Yeah, actually, Ryan McCreese even was for a period of time. When he first moved from New York to Maryland, he kind of had my number at the beginning. Like, he beat me more often than just about anybody. And then eventually, a year or two later, I, I turned it around, and, and I had a winning record against him for a good period after that. But initially, when he moved there, he yeah, he had my number. Um, on the Pro Tour, man, like, Efren and Bustamante, like, I think I just had too much respect for the guys. Like, I've seen a lot of guys have that with Archer, too. A lot of the great American players, they would play phenomenal against so many other players. But because Archer was the man for so long, they had too much respect. And they would just dog it for Johnny, like, over and over again. I was like, man, you guys play so good. Just, like, he's human. You know, you don't have to lose just because you're playing Johnny. Like, And they would over and over again. And unfortunately... I did that for Efren. I'm 0-4 playing him in tournaments, and I think I've only won once against Bustamante playing tournaments, uh, something like that. Like, he's up 3-1, 4-1 on me. And I just had a little bit too much respect. I just kind of couldn't close out matches where I had opportunities against those guys. How'd you do against Johnny? Uh, Johnny, I kept track very specifically because he was the man to beat at the time when I first started playing the big events. I'm down 18-16. We played 34 times. Wow. And I'm going to catch him eventually. Like before we retire, I'm going to catch up to this guy. He'll he'll be using a walker and uh, can't see hey, anymore, but you'll beat him. <laughs> whatever it takes. I mean, you know what? Ray Martin is 85 
And uh, he's actually not leaving the house right now because of the COVID-19. But before that, he was still beating me at one pocket, 85 years old. I'm telling you, he's the best player in North Carolina for about two or three hours to this day. Really? Now, it's amazing because the guy like, you know, 85, he's been damn near blind for 20 years now. He asked me to read the menu to him one time so he could order a sandwich this was 19 years ago. He had just played a flawless set. He runs out from everywhere, <laughs> never missed a ball. The only thing he did was break dry a couple times. Plays perfect, and then he comes comes to the bar, and uh, he, he's doing doing this with the menu, putting it back and forth, trying to get it to where he could read it. And he finally hands it to me. He said, "Hey, Mike, do you mind reading reading this for me? I'd like to order a sandwich." I'm like, wow. Are "You kidding? <laughs> you just ran out. I just got beat by a blind guy." But anyway, I'm telling you, to this day, he still beats me at one pocket, and he's wow. 85. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So uh, maybe it will take Johnny getting a walker before I can beat him. But whatever the case is, well, you I'm going to get ahead on him. You beat him yeah. 16 times. I mean, not many yeah, people I, can say that. Yeah, I, had, I, I played the way I was supposed to against him. So, like I said, a lot of the other guys didn't. And I feel like I won exactly however many matches I was supposed to win. He was a little bit better player. And I hung in there, and I never just gave it away to him. You know, I made him earn it. I actually beat him 9-1 to one twice. I've yeah. never skunked him, but I beat him 9-1 to one twice. So I was pretty proud of that. And he, but one of them, I think, made him mad. He beat me the next four times in a row, whatever. I did skunk Earl once. At the place where he was the house pro, I beat him 7-0 at Gate City Billiards in Greensboro when he was sponsored there. Wow. That kind of reminds me of the time that you and I were hanging out. You were dating a girl. She brought all, all of her friends. And we decided to play some eight ball and I just tortured you for a half hour. And it was like, you know, beat you like five games in a row. And they're like, wait, he's the pro or he's the pro? <laughs> you remember that? I do. Yeah. You played really good eight ball, actually. Uh, like that's definitely your best game. You play it really, you know, great patterns. Nah, I'm, I'm a retired pool player. I'm doing podcasts now. So <laughs> one thing I wanted to mention that I kind of found interesting is that, um, you know, you, you brought up Johnny Archer and, you know, I hadn't met Johnny Archer. I still haven't met Johnny Archer, but I did play in a tournament with him one time. And it was uh, one of the Seminole Pro events in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. And I'm living in Jacksonville and I heard he was coming. And so I said, this is so cool. You know, Johnny Archer is playing in the tournament I'm playing in, you know, because he was like a legend for me growing up. And uh, so we're waiting for the match to start. And he's going to play Keith Bennett, who came down from North Carolina, a good player from North Carolina. And Keith is warming up. He's hitting balls over and over. He's hitting balls for like 45 minutes. And there's no like Johnny's on the clock. It's like Johnny's coming and this match is starting when Johnny gets here, you know. <laughs> so sure enough, Johnny rolls in you know, about an hour later and uh, just marches up to the table like, okay, let's go, you know, <laughs> ready to play. <laughs> and I was like, wow, you know, uh, it was, it was kind of neat to watch. Now, Keith wasn't too happy about it. And Keith actually played a really good set on him and, and sent Johnny to the, the loser's bracket. I don't remember what happened, but I'm sure Johnny probably came back and uh, did pretty well in that tournament. Uh, no, actually, I remember what happened. Oh, you do? Were yeah. you there? I was there. So, uh. First off, I just want to mention uh, the, the town I'm originally from, Fayetteville, uh, in North Carolina. That's where Keith's from. And me and Keith played each other as kids. So I've known him since we were teenagers. And wow. uh, so I think it's kind of cool that we're from the same town originally and both end up really good players. And only two guys from North Carolina even came down to play in that tournament in Florida. Johnny Archer went two and out to the two guys from Fayetteville. So Really? 
Yeah, I forget who put me in the losers, but I beat Johnny the next match after Keith did. So, And Johnny had went undefeated on the Seminole Tour the week before, or whatever it was, a month before. He had won the previous tournament. And I was like, man, I can't have Johnny coming down to Florida and like think he was going to rob all of our little tournaments <laughs> down here, take my lunch money. So I bared down really hard, and I beat him that match. So, yeah, Johnny went two and out, and he was not happy at all. But Wow. So. That was probably the time when you were house pro at Hammerheads. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. So that was about nine years ago, something like that. Yeah. And and at this point, you don't have. Do you have any sponsors now? I I think you have some rooms that kind of you know hook yeah, you up a little so, bit. Yeah, I don't have any real sponsorship, but a couple of the rooms, you know, still give me free table time, that sort of thing. Uh, they appreciate having me and you know guys like Ray Martin come around. So yeah, um, Brass Tap and and. Raleigh. It's funny, all the rooms that I go to in Raleigh all start with B. There's Brass Tap, Browns, Bucks, and Break Time. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's 10 pool rooms around Raleigh. It's a great city for pool. Like, there's just so much. And uh, those are the main four that I go to in Raleigh. Well, hopefully the listeners, when they're out there, they'll check out some of those places. I think that, you know, that's one of the things I enjoy when I travel is going to a city that I'm not familiar with and just finding the pool halls, right? Because as soon as I get there, I can relate to people instantly. You know, we, yeah. we share a common bond, you know. So uh, let me ask you this. Um, name for me two or three people that you'd like to see sit through the same torture that you're sitting through right now. Like, who would you like to see me interview? Okay, well, McCready comes to mind right away. Like, you know, McCready's got as many stories as anybody. He's been around a ton. Uh, that that North Carolina player, John, uh, Charlie Brinson, that I mentioned, I don't know. I mean, he, he wasn't maybe a top player, but he was. He, he actually, he just didn't travel and play as many pro tournaments, but he beat a lot of guys gambling. So was he, he like was, Tony Watson speed, like around there? Yeah. Like, really yeah. tough player, yeah. but not exactly a pro. Yeah, exactly. Like, he, but he beat Charlie Williams and Max Everly gambling before. He beat a bunch of good players, you know. And I watched him beat uh, Tommy Kennedy eleven two in the finals of a regional tournament. He just didn't care about pro tournaments so much, so he'd rather gamble afterwards. One of those types. But he was absolutely a pro level player, whether he really bothered playing many pro tournaments or not. Um, Richie Richardson, Justin Hall. Uh, those guys, like, I know they've got a bunch of good stories, too. I don't know exactly how PC it's going to be if you talk to some of them, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you might have to edit some things, but great guys, great storytellers, you know, that type of, a lot of fun yeah. stuff. You introduced me to Richie down in Florida one time, and him and I played a little one pocket, and he gave me too much weight. And not that I'm a great one pocket player or anything, but I beat him out of forty dollars, and then he borrowed it from me. So <laughs> if he comes on, he's gonna have to pay me back that forty. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pool player story for you, right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a very typical story. I also want to mention uh, something you said about the dress codes before. I yeah. think the dress code needs to be Nikes, sweats, and a white T-shirt. I mean, <laughs> if yeah. you ever see Richie and half the other pool players show up to gamble, it's Nikes, sweats, and a white T-shirt. That's got to be, be the dress code. You got to be comfortable. You know, <laughs> yeah. like like I mentioned the analogy with poker. And if you look around at a poker room and all the poker players, they're wearing whatever the heck they want. They know they're going to be sitting down for 12, 14 hours. And so they want to be comfortable. In pool, it's even more important because you're on your feet the whole time. And, you know, you have sometimes the rooms are hot, sometimes they're cold. You have to be comfortable. Right. And so I look back. Uh, I think I saw a match where you were playing someone and, and you guys are both wearing the vests. And I'm like, you know, I was searching through all your old material and I'm like, how do you do that? 
You know, like I wear that for my day job where I get dressed and I wear a long sleeve shirt and a tie sometimes, but I couldn't imagine playing pool in that attire. It's not fun. It's hot. And, and it actually takes away from your game a little bit. It really does. I think, uh, you know, if, if the shirts even do, you know, like it's just a polo, a collar shirt, something similar to what you have on now, maybe I can handle that. Right. But uh, anything that restricts your movement a little bit. So I don't want the long sleeve button up and the vest. Like that's just kind of ridiculous to make somebody play in that. Yeah. And and the shoes are super important. Honestly, I, I found uh Hoka tennis shoes. I mean, those things are amazing. I don't know. Uh, if, if you've ever heard of them, but I'm recommending those to everybody and definitely not sponsored. I just think if you got to be on your feet 12 <laughs> hours a day, uh, they're better what, than Nikes or whatever. Like, you know. What are they called? Hoka, H-O-K-A. H-O-K-A. Hey, okay. Yeah. yeah my, my wife has me doing this uh, barefoot shoe movement. Have you heard about this? I have. And there's people that say it's, you know, much more natural for your for the bones in your feet to move that way and whatever. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not playing pool for 12 hours barefoot. I, I keep telling her she's turning me into a hippie. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> so. so, Mike, um, what uh, if you look back at everything that you've done in pool, um, do you have any regrets? Anything you wish you would have done different? Man. I mean, I'm I'm sure there's things I could have done different. We all could have, right? I mean, the biggest thing I regret really as far as pool is not not sticking with it when I was younger and basically starting over again at 17. You know, if I was already playing pretty good at nine and you've got guys that start playing good at like, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And because I started over at 17, didn't play good till I was 20. If I just kept playing the whole time, I probably would have played good at 12 or 13 and then who knows what my pool career could have been like. Another one would have been one pocket. People told me forever and ever, you got to start playing one pocket. It's a better game, this and that. And I used to hate it. I didn't like the slow pace of the game. But, of course, there's a more offensive style uh, being played today than there used to be, especially when you watch, like, Tony Watson or Scott Frost, where you're living at. I mean, he's known for the power of one pocket. It just makes it a lot more entertaining version of the game than one pocket used to seem to me. But yeah, now I love one pocket. I like all the games. I mean, I love straight pool, eight ball. They've all got their different strategies to them. And I like, you know, figuring out the patterns. But yeah, I really do appreciate the game of one pocket now. And it it took me till I was about 40 years old to, to even want to bother playing it at all. And now I kind of like it. Yeah. So in terms of sponsorships, because over the years, you, you were a house pro at a place. You've had some small sponsorships. But you know, the way to really make money as a professional pool player is to have a large sponsor, right? Like a QTAC or like Shane has or something like that. So um, do you have any advice for maybe players that are, you know, coming up now uh, in terms of how to market themselves for a sponsorship? I wish I was good at that sort of thing. Maybe I would have had more. <laughs> I really don't know. Uh, I mean, but it does help. You know, you want to just have good behavior, a good image. You know, pool's got a bad reputation for a reason, unfortunately. And there's a lot of great players in the game, so it's hard to over, you know, overcome what the unfortunate like uh, reputation that we have. Just, but be one of the good people. You know, what I mean, that's that's simple, and and people are going to recognize, like Oscar Dominguez, for instance. Like everybody knows he's a good guy, so yeah. sponsors will, you know, gravitate towards that because they're like, hey, 
everyone trusts him. They know he's good. He's going to show up to the tournament and do his best every time and represent us well. When he doesn't play well, he's still going to represent us in a, in a good manner. So they're going to sponsor him more likely than some of the other guys who are maybe the entertaining characters, but maybe not the professional type. So. Yeah, so we're kind of winding down here. So let me give you a question that I, you know, you just, I'm just going to wing it here. Uh, I remember hearing this story one time, and I don't even know if it's true, uh, but someone said that they talked to the good player, uh, the really good player, Jerry Slifka. You remember that guy? Absolutely. And, and they said, if you could tell me one thing about pool that would help me more than anything else, what would it be? And this is, again, secondhand information, but Jerry said, think of the absolute worst thing that could happen on every shot. And don't do it. <laughs> and it, it kind of, but you know, it's funny because it sounds so obvious, you know, but how many times is there a layout, right? And there's only one place you can't put the cue ball or one mistake you can't make and you make that one mistake, you know? And so I always thought that was like really interesting and profound. So I'm going to ask you to kind of, you know, right on the fly, think of like one solid piece of advice that you could give to the listeners out there. Uh, if they're a recreational player and just trying to have fun or somebody who's a little more competitive, is there a, a key nugget that you have something that you stick to? There is one again, I'm like afraid to tell people these secrets here. I don't need everybody playing too good on me, but there's one that's absolutely, it really kind of is like a secret, but it's not right. And it sounds super simple. Again, you just have to think positive. Your last thought has to be positive because if you're thinking, okay, I don't want to do this, like don't hit it too soft or this will happen. Don't do this or I might scratch. A lot of times you end up scratching if that's what your last thought was, even though it's kind of difficult to scratch on purpose, your brain is like a computer that can't differentiate between positive and negative. So all it knows to do is the last thought that you had. So if you're thinking something negative, there's a really good chance that's what's going to happen versus if you have an incredibly difficult shot, but you stay positive and, you know, just just think positive the whole time. Chances are you're going to make that tough shot. I mean, that's all your brain knows to do is whatever the last thing is that you tell it. That's really great advice. You know, and I think about shots that I've had where I'm between two shots. Right. And it's like your brain is alternating between should I cut it? Should I bank it? Should I cut it? Should I bank it? Should I cut it? And then you go and hit it and you're trying to cut it. And it's almost like you banked it. You know, you hit it so bad, you know, exactly. and so I, it probably has something to do with that. I would think that's really yeah. uh, that, that's all. Like I said, that's all your brain can do is whatever you tell it to do. So and I've yeah. seen guys that play awful patterns, but they commit to their shot and they run out. You know what I mean? Like they're not that good, but they keep getting it done because they don't know that they're not that good. They yeah. just keep running out. <laughs> well, I remember one time I was asking you because, you know, a lot of the listeners probably don't know, but Mike is like an encyclopedia of pool player knowledge. So, you know, I would ask him, you know, hey, who's the best player in this, you know, pool room or the best player in this state? Places he doesn't even frequent. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, watch out for Mark Haddad. He plays great. You know, <laughs> and I'm like, how do you how do you even know this? Uh, but one day I was asking you, I kept noticing from the Joss events and the East Coast uh, events that Jeremy Sasse was being very successful, you know, and I had seen him play a couple times and I thought he was a good player, but I didn't, nothing really jumped out at me like, wow, you know, he's spectacular. He should be knocking off, you know, all of these top players that he's beating. And I asked you about it and I said, Mike, you know, 
what what is it about Jeremy Sasse? And you you said to me, I don't know if you remember this. You said he tries really hard. <laughs> you remember that? No, I didn't even remember saying that actually. But yeah, he's certainly like that. He's got a phenomenal break too, so that that part's key. But yeah, he he does. He grinds hard on every shot. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things I think to the game. Like, you know, there's a lot of really talented players who maybe just lack that just a little bit of an intensity. Yeah. And you have to. Like you can't take any shot for granted. You just got to try try really hard every every shot you ever take. When you told me that, it really changed the way I played, right? Because the fact that I started playing at five years old, you know, it's hard for me to tell people what I do when I hit a ball. It's just kind of like ingrained in me. I just get down, hit a ball, get down, hit a ball. And when you told me about, you know, your assessment of, of Jeremy at the time, which, you know, you were very flattering. You didn't say anything bad about him. You were saying, but the thing he does really well is he tries really hard. And it made me say, I don't really try really hard. You know, I just see the <laughs> balls that I get down and I hit them. And if good things happen, that's great. But I started really focusing then on each shot after you told me that and, you know, trying to stay down on the ball, trying to concentrate, trying to grind it out. Sometimes you have situations on a pool table where it's pretty bleak, right? It, it looks like the, all the tables are turned against you. And so being able to work your way through those problems and not give up, you know, and try really hard, I think is really important advice. So, you know, thanks for giving me that advice, even though you don't remember giving it to me. <laughs> no problem you're welcome <laughs> yeah so uh mike i just want to this has been excellent i really appreciate talking to you and i think folks are really going to appreciate getting to know you a little better and kind of hearing some of the things that you know you've encountered in your pool career and you know some advice that you've given here today um I'm not sure we've told a lot of stories, but is there any one particular story that kind of jumps out that says, hey, you got to hear this. This is just the funniest story or most interesting pool story. Like before you start, I, I had a buddy. I asked him this question because I've been commentating matches. Right. And you probably know this guy, Chris Lulick. He's a good player out here in Arizona. And I asked him, I said, hey, tell me a good pool story. And he says, oh, well, I was playing this guy up in Vegas. And I beat the guy out of $500. He was a road player. And then he bet me that he, he had three tries to throw a quarter from 25 feet away into the coin slot of a slot machine. <laughs> and he's like, bet. Well, second try, swish, right in. <laughs> you know, like stories like that. Do you have anything like that you want to share with us? Man, I've heard of guys practicing stuff like that, too. There's guys that can pitch the quarters to the spot, to the wall, just, you know, all kinds of little gimmick stuff. Uh I'll tell you my favorite pool story. Um, it's actually about Tony Watson. Tony Watson, most everybody's heard of him. Great gambler, wasn't much on tournaments, but I mean, I watched him play a set for 39,000 and he looked like just the best pool player I'd ever seen. You know what I mean? Like he, he could get it, he could get right and get there for the cash. Anyway, he was playing Alex Pagulain. My buddy, we made a cheap side bet, just friendly, whatever. But uh, Tony Watson goes into the bathroom and he about busted the door off the hinges the way he opened the door and comes marching back to the table and his face was bright red. And I don't know exactly what he did while he was in there, but he was trying to get right to win this match. You can and my only buddy imagine looks at him. And then he looks at me and he says, Hey man, uh, if my player dies, do I have to pay off? <laughs> so. Oh, did he win? Did he come he back? He did not win that day. That was no. his uh third day playing alex and uh alex he beat alex the first day alex went home and got some sleep they played again then they played again 
And I'm pretty sure Tony Washington was still awake. Uh, it was Q Masters 24 hour pool room back in the day. Pretty sure Tony Watson never left that pool room. So I knew on the third day he was going to be getting a little bit tired. So yeah. I bet on Alex that time. Oh, okay. Switched it up. And Tony's from North Carolina, right? He is, yeah. I believe Hickory, North Carolina, but yeah, he's okay. from North Carolina. You know, we had so many great players here. Uh, when I was young, about 10, 15, 20 years ago, we had a ton. I mean, Michael Coltrane, Tony, uh, Keith Bennett, Sparky Farrell, Sam Monday, Mike Fuller. There was a bunch of other ones, too. I mean, but unfortunately, uh, most of them, you know, some of them just got jobs, settled down, did whatever they did. But pool's not quite the same in North Carolina right now. It's a little bit weaker. It used to be really, really tough state. Yeah. Well, hey, I asked you that question before about who you would want to see me interview on here. And, you know, I really like some of those names that you mentioned. Uh, I have a few in mind. Some we've talked about. We talked about Scott Frost. He lives here in Arizona. And, you know, going back to what you said about one pocket and that you wish you would have played it earlier. I mean, that's like, I have a lot of questions to ask Scott, but that's the one, right? Like, how did you flip the script, right? Everybody else starts playing rotation and then switches over to one pocket. You know, how did you start? playing one pocket. And honestly, before I saw him ever play a game of rotation, I just assumed he couldn't play rotation. You know, I just assumed he was a good one pocket player. And I was like, I, I wonder if I could play him even in rotation. Uh, no, I cannot. He's a very no. good rotation player too, you know, but uh, he really just stuck with one pocket, you know? So, you know, I'm thinking names like that, you know, Scott Frost, Mitch Ellerman out here, Justin Hall was a great recommendation. I'd love to be able to talk to him. Uh, you know, Donnie Mills down there in Florida, he'd be another one that I'd like to talk to. So anything that you can do to help me connect with these folks, I'd really appreciate it because I think everybody, each of you guys has a story to tell and yeah. peop, peop, you have a right to tell it. People want to hear it and it's only going to help make the game better. So yeah. I'm here to try to bring that to people and to try to make the game better, try to promote the players and really make a difference. So I want to thank you for joining me today and and kind of being a part of this movement. And so I really appreciate it, Mike. Yeah, thanks, man. I'll, I'll definitely get in touch with those guys for you if it'll help a little bit. I've actually, if you got a second, I've got one more story I, I, I okay. would like to share. Yeah. Uh, so I actually, years ago when I was on the road trying to trying to gamble and hustle, trying to use sometimes a fake name, which I actually just went by uh, my first name, James, because my middle name's Mike, actually. Oh, really? And, uh, so I went into a, a little bar. Somebody sent me there, told me to gamble. They didn't know who was who. I go in the bar. All five tables are being used. So I get ready to turn around and leave because I didn't think I'd be able to get a table. They were going to be used all night for leagues is what the bartender told me. So right by the door, when I'm getting ready to walk out, there's a little bulletin board type thing, and they've got like – the league player standings on there. And so it says Tuesday night, eight ball league, the number one ranked player is Mike Davis. Wednesday night, nine ball league, number one player is Mike Davis. I'm like, all right, hold on a second. Like, <laughs> I got to play this guy some. I can't leave. So I, I just turned around. I go to the bar and I find the nearest guy at the bar. And I'm just like, hey, man, uh, my name is Mike Davis. And apparently you got a Mike Davis in town that plays pool a little bit. You know, is he here tonight? I'd like to play him some. And he's like trying so hard to talk me out of it. He's like, no, no, he's really, really good, man. You don't want to play him. <laughs> I'm like, no, trust me. I really do. <laughs> I really do want to play him some. So anyway, he's, he tries to talk me out of it again. And then finally he goes and gets the guy. And so, you know, a little bit older guy, a little short. He walks up and he just kind of looks me up and down. He's like, we can play some, kid. <laughs> and uh, 
So I was like, all right, you know, and I was trying to tell him before, I was like, hey, you know, I might not be the best pool player in the world, but I got to think I'm the best with my name. So like, we have to do this. Okay. We just, right. you know, and, and I asked him, do you want to see my driver's license? He's like, no, nah, I don't care. We could play. <laughs> he didn't care about that. Anyway, so Mike Davis from Michigan. I think it's Waterville something, Little Town. Uh, anyway, the dude played good, but he didn't break the balls real well. I was breaking phenomenal at the time. So I ended up beating him out of about 600 playing nine ball. He says, come on back like a day or two later. And uh, I come back and I'm up 200 again, playing 50 a game. He says, let's switch it to eight ball. And man, this guy's patterns, like he was just robbing me playing bar table eight ball, like torturing me. And he gets up a few hundred, whatever. And then all of a sudden at 11 o'clock at night, it was like he fell dead. He couldn't he couldn't run out for anything. And I asked him and he was like, yeah, I got up at like four or five in the morning, went to work all day. Like, I'm tired. man." <laughs> but he kept playing until two in the morning and never won another game from 11 o'clock at night till two in the morning. I ended up winning like another 500 or something. So Jeez. anyway, great player at a great bar table player anyway. And then a few months later, I'm still an amateur at the time. So I win some big amateur tournament. I win the finals, do an exhibition with Jeanette Lee, who was, you know, there to do an exhibition at the amateur, win an extra thousand for beating Jeanette Lee. That was pretty cool. It qualified me to go to some uh, national amateur tournament in Vegas. I get out to Vegas. Mike Davis from Michigan's already signed up. So they said, well, you have to use a different name. We already have a Mike Davis in the tournament. So I'm like, okay, you know, it's, my name is James Michael Davis. So I said, sign me up as James Davis. Anyway, I end up getting knocked out immediately. I go home and everybody's like, congratulations. And I thought they were just messing with me. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and like, well, you, you just won a tournament last week in Vegas, right? <laughs> Apparently, Mike Davis from Michigan won the tournament out in Vegas. I haven't seen the guy again. It's been, you know, 15, 20 years, whatever. Hopefully he's still around. You know, hopefully he's still playing a little bit. If anybody knows him, you know, hopefully he's doing good, man. Yeah, Tell maybe, him he'll, maybe he'll tune in and uh, check out the episode. That would be really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was pretty fun. I was always thinking at the time, I was like, man, if I'm going to keep hustling, I just need to find the biggest score in the next town, get a fake ID with their name. How's he not going to play me? <laughs> that's the move. Yeah, that's the Funny move, thing right? is your alias, James Davis, aren't there a father son team out in Texas that plays real good? Absolutely. So there's a there's a Jim Davis in Ohio. So that's James Davis as well, who's a pretty solid player. And then the father and son out in Texas. At the time, I was telling people I was James Davis, not knowing that there was a James who played better than me at the time. Because, you know, <laughs> back then when I was traveling on the road gambling, I wasn't at my absolute peak yet. And that uh, James Sr. out there is a really strong player. And James Jr. ended up playing really, really good, too. I remember Jr. told me one time, he said, uh, you might be the best James Davis at nine ball, but I'm the best at one pocket in banks. And I oh, said, really? well, I think I can get you a straight pool. <laughs> so we're tied 2-2. We didn't even play, but we agreed we're tied 2-2. Who's the best player? I said, well, I guess we got to play a set of eight ball now. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I flew into Austin, and I went up to Round Rock, and I met James Sr. And really just met him by saying, hey, does anybody want to play? And he was like, yeah, I'll play you some one pocket. And so he's like, what do you want to play for? I said, I'm, I'm just here for work. I don't even have my cue. How about like 10 a game? And so I figured he'd say no. And he's like, sure. So we played for like two hours, 10 a game. 
And a good guy invited me out to the Texas Open. I haven't been able to make it yet, but uh, yeah, James Davis is a good guy. Yeah, him, him and his son are both good people and real good players. But no, senior though, they call him slow death. <laughs> oh, really? So yeah, he's oh, he's yeah. not known for being a quick player at all. He'll put you to sleep and he'll be running out the whole time too. <laughs> but, yeah. So he's tough, but real nice yeah. guy. Hey Mike, listen, I really appreciate those stories. It's been a, this has been so much fun. I mean, we've been friends for, you know, 15 or so years and uh a lot of this information was new to me and it was it was super cool to to connect with you and you know, let's uh let's stay connected. Let's try to get more people on this show and and kind of hear more stories, hear more about people and get more advice. Absolutely. It was fun chatting with you, bro. Awesome. Well, thanks Mike. Yeah. How go? We'll be right back.